Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for coming, worshiping with us here at Ivy Creek. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take them out and turn with me to the book of Genesis and to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26. While you're turning there, I want to just share a, uh, a story with you that I was reminded of earlier this week. In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, the author Dallas Willard describes a pilot who was practicing high-speed maneuvers in a jet fighter. And suddenly, the pilot turned the controls so that the, the jet would take a steep ascent, but instead, the jet flew straight into the ground, destroying the jet and killing the pilot. And the reason that happened was because the pilot was unaware that she had been flying upside down. Willard goes on to remark, he says, this is a parable of human existence in our times. Not exactly that everyone is crashing, though there is enough of that, he writes. But he says this, most of us as individuals and world society as a whole live at high speed and often with no clue as to whether we are flying upside down or right side up. I was reminded of that story and that comparison this week as I stared on and watched people gleefully applaud and celebrate a bill that was signed into law in New York that now allows for full-term abortions, a law that also greatly reduces the safeguards and the care that is provided to unborn babies. Brothers and sisters, we are living in a world that is flying upside down. We are living in a world that celebrates the very things that ought to make us weep. The prophet Isaiah encountered a time just such as that and wrote in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20. He says, woe to those who call good evil and, and evil good. Woe to those who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to them who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Brothers and sisters, according to God's word, the Lord is not only our redeemer, he is our maker who knit us together in our mother's womb and formed us in our innermost parts. And the scriptures declare that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And he knew us long before we were ever born and took our first breath. And it declares unequivocally that all children are a blessing and a heritage from the Lord. Therefore, Woe be unto those who stand and say something other than what God's word clearly declares. Woe to those who put evil for good and darkness for light. Woe unto those who proudly stand shaking their fists in the face of Almighty God, refusing to acknowledge the very foundations upon which our society is built. God is a God of mercy. 
not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the Bible also says that God stores up his wrath against the unjust and the unrighteous. And one day in his timing and according to his will, God will judge those who refuse to bow before him and who treated his kindness and his word with contempt. I pray for those who have made such horrible decisions. From the lawmakers to the ones who perform those abortions, even down to the very ones who are considering having them. I pray that God will change their hearts and that he will change their minds and that they will choose life and that God somehow, some way will convince them that his love and his grace is greater than the circumstances that they are facing. And I want you to know that is why we as a church family support directly ministries just such as the Obria Medical Clinic right here in Gwinnett County that was formerly known as, as the Pregnancy Resource Center of Gwinnett. The men and women of that organization are committed to reaching mothers of the unborn educating them, introducing them to other options besides abortion, while also introducing them to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I am grateful that we as a church family have the opportunity to be involved and be a part of such a, a wonderful ministry with such a lofty goal. I say everything I say this morning with the full recognition of that old phrase, there but by the grace of God go I. So I do not come before you with a condemning spirit, but I do come before you unapologetically asking that God will continue his mercy and his grace, but that he will also bring about conviction upon those who continue to perpetrate murder in the womb. I pray that God will bring conviction upon them because there are those who cannot speak and cannot defend themselves. I also pray for their conviction and their repentance for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father, our heart breaks when we see things taking place across our world, but yes, Lord, even in our own country, that break our hearts. It's true what we see, that we live in a world that is flying upside down, calls evil good, calls that which is good evil. Our world, our country continues to be polarized further and further. And we are called to live in it. We are called to continue to stand, proclaim the good news of the gospel. I pray that we would be found faithful doing that. Let your gospel go forth. Let, let the mercy and the patience that you show not be swept away as something inconsequential, but allow it to produce repentance and faith. The truth of the matter is, there but by the grace of God go every single one of us in this room. So we cannot stand in pride. We do humbly stand on the truth of God's word 
And we pray that you will bring about your good and your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As we come back to the text this morning, back to Genesis 26, we come to a chapter that I want to state up front is a little peculiar, it's a little unique, it's a little puzzling because of its placement. Chapter 26 serves sort of as an interlude in the Jacob and Esau story. We began kind of getting into that story in earnest last week back in chapter 25 and and that story will continue on in chapter 27. And that's what makes the placement of chapter 26 somewhat puzzling because it just doesn't seem to fit the narrative flow. In fact, some scholars even believe that the events of chapter 26 actually occur prior to the birth of Jacob and Esau. So that's the, the, the puzzling placement of the chapter. What makes the chapter unique, however, is that it's the only chapter in the book of Genesis that primarily deals with Isaac. James Montgomery Boyce has pointed out this. He says, Isaac is not an illustrious personality. In fact, other than what we read in this chapter, every other time that Isaac is mentioned in Genesis, it's against the backdrop of someone else's life. Only here does Isaac have a chapter that's devoted to him. And only here, though, we also see that even though it's only devoted to him here, the parallels between Isaac's life, the life events that he experiences and the actions in which he engages, they are strikingly parallel to his father Abraham's. As Griffith Thomas has written, Isaac is presented as the ordinary son of a great father and the ordinary father of a great son. But even so, even so, in this chapter, God reaffirms his promise of blessing to Isaac. And that same blessing that Isaac will then ultimately pass on to his son Jacob, as we will see the Lord willing in the next chapter. So with that as an introduction, let's read the first 11 verses of Genesis 26. And let's see these similarities between what took place in Isaac's life and what took place in Abraham's life. Verse 1 says this, There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. And then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of the heaven. And I will give to your descendants all these lands. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. And the men of the place asked about his wife. And he said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say, she is my wife, because he thought, lest the men of the place kill me for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. Now it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac, showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously, she is your wife. 
So how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. And may God add his blessings to the reading of his word this morning. You know, I remember back when I was a kid that the major television networks always kind of rolled out the first episodes of all of their uh, primetime shows in the fall of the year. And then they would, they would re-air all of those same episodes as reruns in the spring. And so back before the age of Netflix and, and TV on demand, back when the only channels that you could get around this part of the world was 2, 5, 11, 17, and sometimes 46 if you could get your antenna to turn just right. Back before you could do all that, I remember as a kid watching a whole lot of reruns on TV because that's all there was to watch. Well, as I was reading this text for you this morning, some of you may have been sitting out there going, man, this sure does feel like a rerun. This, I believe I've seen or heard this story before, and you'd be right. The reason that's the case is because everything that happens to Isaac here in chapter 26 has a connection to something that occurred in the life of his father Abraham earlier that Moses has already detailed for us in the book of Genesis. And that becomes immediately apparent to us by the way that the chapter begins. Moses tells us that there was a famine in the land. But then he makes clear that we know it's not the same famine that I've already told you about. It's not the same famine that Abraham went through. You see, back in chapter 12 of Genesis, right after God had called Abraham to leave his homeland and to travel to the land of Canaan, we read that just like we did in our text this morning, a famine came. Now, famines were not completely uncommon in the land of Canaan. After all, it was an arid climate there. And, and since food production depends on rainfall, and since as the last part of chapter 26 will make clear to us, wells were hard to come by in that part of the world, well then, when there was no rain, crops dried up rapidly and, and hunger spread quickly across the area. And it's really the idea that a famine has come is what leads me to the very simple outline that I provided for you this morning. Just single words that I've given to you to kind of serve as hooks for us to hang our thoughts on as we work our way through this passage. And so the very first word that I've provided for you this morning is, is simple. It goes along with the idea of a famine. It's the word adversity. Adversity. You see, what strikes me about what Moses revealed is that just as it was with Abraham, so it was with Isaac, they both faced the adversity that came along with having to endure a famine. Now, we probably might not expect that these two fine patriarchs of faith would have to experience such adversity. I mean, after all, they are the patriarchs, right? But the fact is, just as it was with them, just so it is with us. All of us face famines. All of us face adversity. All of us face times of testing and trials. 
You see, adversity is not something, though, that most of us enjoy. Let's just be honest. Nobody gets up in the morning thinking, man, I really can't wait to find out what kind of trial I'm going to have to go through today. I can't wait to find out what sort of times of testing God is going to throw my way. The truth is, none of us enjoy famines. None of us enjoy adversity. But every one of us experiences it. The scriptures, though, call us to, to take a different perspective on adversity when it strikes. Listen to what the Apostle James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes in his epistle in the very first chapter. He says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, and let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. You see, what, what James tells us is that God's goal in our lives through the testing that comes through our lives, through the adversity that we face, is that it's there to produce in us maturity, that we are to grow in our faith and our testimony of God's grace and His mercy. Warren Wiersbe has commented this. He says, God uses tough circumstances of our lives to build the muscles of our faith and to keep us from trusting something other than His Word. You might say it this way. God uses adversity to grow our faith and deepen our trust in Him. Now that's incredibly important that we get our hands around that right up front because Moses has told us that the setting for this chapter is adversity. We're going to see how Isaac responds to adversity. And Moses sets the hook right up front. He tells us that there was a famine in the land. But then, according to verse 1, we see how... Isaac responds, notice that once the famine came, Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Now, that initially may seem pretty harmless. I mean, after all, you need to move to where there's something where you can get food. But when you look where Gerar is on a map, you find out that it's in the southern part of Canaan. As a matter of fact, it's in the southernmost part of Canaan, and one would necessarily have to travel through Gerar if one was going to go to Egypt. Now, that's exactly what Abraham did. Back in chapter 12, when the famine hit, Abraham picked up everything he had and he moved to Egypt, which was probably a pretty good thought in and of itself. After all, Egypt did not seem to enjoy the same kind of struggles that Canaan did when famines came. You remember that the river Nile is there and due to the flooding of, Nile, of the Nile River, they tended to have a whole lot more food and you could, you could subsist and wait out a famine in Egypt. And so that's exactly what Abraham did, but the only problem was Abraham never consulted God before he did that. Nowhere do you find that Abraham prayed and asked, was this the right thing for him to do? Instead, the fear of the famine caused Abraham to adopt an attitude of self-reliance. He trusted in himself. Well, back here in chapter 26, we get the indication that Isaac was about to do the exact same thing. Isaac headed down to Gerar, but then God steps in in verse 2. Verse 2, God appeared to Isaac and said to him, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. Now, it is that understanding that leads me to the second point that I want you to see on your outline. We move from adversity to the second point, obedience. Obedience. Now, the truth of the matter is, obedience in the face of adversity is not always something that's easy for us to do. To obey what God tells us to do 
And oftentimes we already know what God wants us to do. When we are in the middle of an adverse situation and we are facing times of, of trial, it's not always easy. And it doesn't always make sense. Consider this. Kent Hughes writes that the command to forego going down to Egypt was a substantial test of Isaac's faith because the famine was regional and it included Gerar. Humanly speaking, to obey by staying in Canaan in time of famine was to court catastrophe. But God's word was explicit. Isaac was not to leave the boundaries of Canaan and go to Egypt. And what we see happening here is that this is a beautiful expression of God's mercy and of God's grace that prevented Isaac from repeating the sin of his father. When Abraham faced the adversity of the famine, he did what most of us would do. He began to try to figure out, how can I get out of this? What can I do to relieve the pressure that I am currently under? What kind of solution can I come up with that will help me be able to move through this? And whenever we do that, almost always the answer is always wrong. That's why Solomon tells us in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5, 6, and 7, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. You see, rather than self-reliance, when adversity comes, we should always place our trust firmly in the Lord and obey Him. And then notice what accompanies obedience. This is the third word that I've given you this morning. Notice the next word there, it's blessing. What accompanies obedience? Blessing. In verses 3 through 5, God reiterates for Isaac all of the promises and all the blessings that he had made to Abraham, his father. Blessings of his presence that he would be with him. Blessings of a land as an inheritance. Blessings of descendants that would outnumber the stars. And then the blessing that he says, through your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You see, God goes on to remind Isaac that all of these blessings that had been his father's were now his. And then he drives the message of that blessing home by reminding him that his father Abraham had lived an obedient life. Look at verse 5 again. He says there, he says, Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. But you may be saying, well, wait a minute though. Didn't you just say that Abraham made a poor choice by going to Egypt? Yes, he did. And brothers and sisters, he ain't done making bad choices in chapter 12. He makes plenty more along the way. We're going to see some more of those momentarily. You see, though Abraham was a man of great faith, he was also a man of flawed faith. And in that, the Bible presents him honestly. And what we realize is that if we are honest, we're just like him. Though we may be people of faith, we are nevertheless people of flawed faith. We understand just how difficult it is to trust God and not lean on our own understandings. As a matter of fact, I shared this with the first service. There's never a time that I read Proverbs 3, 5, 6, and 7 that I'm not convicted of the fact that I have done just the opposite of what that scripture tells me to do. I realize 
as much as anyone in this room just exactly what it feels like to experience that inherent pull towards self-reliance. Abraham certainly realized that. But even though he failed miserably at times, his life was marked by long obedience in the same direction. He trusted God and God credited that faith to him as righteousness. And when God reiterates for Isaac the promises and the blessings that had been his father's, it's as if he is saying to Isaac, look, Isaac, be like your father at his best. Obey me as he did, and you will enjoy the blessings of my presence just as your father did. So, according to verse 6, Isaac stopped. He did not go on to Egypt. His progress was halted, and he stayed in Canaan. He stayed in the land of Gerar. And it is during his stay that things, well, things get crazy, and it makes us maybe start scratching our head and go, Isaac, what in the world were you thinking? I like what Kent Hughes has written. He says, you would think that the theophany recorded in verse 2 with its promise of God's presence and blessing and pathos-filled call to obedience would have put some endearing steel into Isaac, but that was not to be. In fact, in Gerar, Isaac proves that he is both human and he is frail and that his faith is mixed with fear. In fact, that's the next word on your outline. The fourth word that you will see there is just the simple word fear. You see, evidently, Rebecca... Rebecca must have been a looker. She was an exquisitely beautiful woman because Moses tells us that the once she and Isaac settled in Gerar that the men of the region began to ask about her and their questions caused Isaac to fear for his life because he believed that if the men there found out that Rebecca was his wife, they might come and kill him so that they could take her for themselves, And you may be thinking to yourself, well, that sounds a little outlandish, right? David, Uriah, Bathsheba. Not, not as far-fetched as we might imagine. Also, Isaac's fear was the same fear that his father had had. Again, back in Genesis chapter 12, it came to pass that when Abraham got to the area of Egypt and about to go into the land, he said to Sarah, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you, that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. So please say that you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. Strangely enough, it happened a second time. In Genesis chapter 20, strangely enough, in the same land of Gerar, strangely enough, with a king named Abimelech. And there we read in chapter 20 that Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And down in chapter, excuse me, down in verse 11 of that chapter, we read his reasoning. Abraham revealed that he did that because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. So now here in chapter 26, we see that Isaac is just repeating the sins of his father. Isaac fears that his life will be in jeopardy because of Rebekah. 
And incidentally, this is one of the reasons why some scholars believe that this chapter is out of place chronologically. Because had, it, number one, the twins, Jacob and Esau, never mentioned here. And if they had been along for the travel and along for the ride, it would have been much more difficult for Isaac to have hidden the fact that he was their father and that she was his wife. But nevertheless, he came up with a plan. I'll pass Rebecca off as my sister. Why take this approach? Why tell everybody Rebecca is your sister? Well, we're not given an explanation here, but perhaps it was is that Isaac believed that, well, if I pass her off as my sister, I will become the one who has to negotiate any marital ceremony that will take place between her and any of the Philistines. And I can, if I've got control of that, then I can hold that off and make that, make that courtship last as long as I need to for me to be able to outlast the famine. And then I can get her and everything we got and we can get out of Gerar before a wedding ever takes place. Perhaps that was his thought. But what his ultimate goal was, was to protect himself. He was afraid for his own life. And the key to note is that fear motivated Isaac to do what he did. I like what Ian DeGuid has written. He said, whenever we fear something, we are making a prediction about the future that leaves God entirely out of the picture. We can see that happen to Isaac here. I mean, after all, in the preceding verses, God has just reiterated all the promises that were Isaac's to inherit. Promises to bless him, promises to, to, to give him land, promises to bless him with offspring. So in the context, there's no way that Isaac nor any of us can shake off the fact that God has made a commitment to him. God has invested in his life and has made a commitment to Isaac. But now Isaac is living in the land of Gerar and he's surrounded by men who have noticed just how beautiful his wife is. And Isaac is faced with a decision. Will I truly believe God's promises and live as if I believe them or not? Think about this. If, if the men of Gerar could truly have actually killed Isaac and taken his wife from him, then none of God's promises meant a thing. If some amorous Philistine could have truly come and stolen Rebekah from Isaac and snuffed his life out, then nothing that God had promised and said would happen would have had any value whatsoever. But fear, fear caused Isaac to forget all that God had promised. And he left God out of the picture and out of the equation. And instead of his faith in God overcoming his fear of man, it was the other way around. And consequently, Isaac began once again to lean on his own understanding and to rely on himself. And DeGuid also notes that as soon as Isaac stopped fearing God and putting obedience to God first, he started fearing everyone else. And ironically, as long as he was fearing God, he had nothing to fear from any man. But when he started thinking only about himself and about trying to protect himself, he ceased thinking about others and caring for them. And this is what one writer has said is the cowardly, selfish, and faithless act of Isaac. You see, at the end of the day, Isaac, Isaac did not believe that God was with him. He might have theologically affirmed it if he was asked, but he did not subjectively hold to it in his heart. And if he had, he would never have succumbed to the scandalous repetition of his father's sins. 
I have entitled this series of sermons with regard to Genesis, The Story That Explains Our Stories. And I believe that this episode of Isaac's life, like it or not, actually gives us a window into our own souls. You see, it's one thing to affirm who God is and the power that he has. To come into a place like this and sing our songs of faith and, and to declare with brothers and sisters next to us that we believe in Christ and believe what he has done and the power that he has. It's one thing for us to say that we believe all of that, but it is quite another to have God's divine sovereign power dominate and inform our actions day in and day out. To embrace the God that is revealed to us in Scripture and even more to embrace the promises that he has made to us in Christ necessitates that we not live in fear. Rather, our lives must be dominated by our faith in God. And that should put steel in our backbone. It should cause us to live with the confidence of the psalmist who said in Psalm 118 verse 6, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Or what he writes in Psalm 27 verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Well, fear then turns into the final word that I have for you on your outline this morning. It's the word failure. Failure. You see, it happened one day, according to the New King James, that Isaac was showing endearment to Rebekah. If you're reading from an ESV, you'll see that it says that he was laughing with her. Kind of a wordplay on his name. You will also see the NIV says that he was caressing her. I think you get the idea. It just so happened that Abimelech was looking through a window. And he saw what was going on. So according to verse 9, Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously, she's your wife, not your sister, as you claim. Why would you do such a thing? And he said, I did it lest I die on account of her. Many have wondered, is this the same Abimelech that you read about in chapter 20? It's possible. It's also quite possible that this Abimelech in chapter 26 just carried on the same kingly name, kind of like King George I, King George II, III. This is another Abimelech. But what we also know is that he would have been familiar with what took place back in chapter 20. See, back in chapter 20, Abraham pulled the same ruse, except that the king Abimelech there took Sarah to be his wife. And on the very night that he took him to be his wife, God appeared to King Abimelech and said, Look, you're a dead man. You're a dead man because you have another man's wife. And Abimelech was completely surprised and shocked because he had no idea. And he called Abraham into his tent and he says, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Strangely enough, the pagan king Abimelech had more fear of God than Abraham did at this point. And back here in chapter 26, we find the same thing happen again. This Abimelech says, what have you done to us, Isaac, that you have brought this wrath of God? You could have brought wrath of God upon us by what you have done. And here's the thing that I would say. Here's where the failure really comes in. Do you recognize how, how sorry a state it must be to have a pagan king, a pagan 
non-believer call out the son of promise for his lack of faith. So in this episode, we have witnessed adversity come upon Isaac. We've also come to realize that in times of adversity, just like Isaac and Abraham, we are tempted to rely on our own ingenuity and our own solutions to to help us overcome our adversity. But God instead calls us to faith in him and to obey his commands. And such obedience will bring blessing into our lives. In fact, we learn that though all, through all of us, all of the adversity that we face in our lives, that adversity never jeopardizes God's promises to us. Never once. And furthermore, what we've learned is that our faith in God must overcome our fear of our circumstances. We've been reminded that there is a world that is always watching us, a world that needs to know if our faith truly matters to us, a world that needs to know it, that there is a God who is infinitely bigger than the problems that we face and whose promises are firm and fixed and do not change with the shifting sands of our culture. There is a world that is watching every single one of us to see how will we handle the adversity that comes into our lives. And all of that then leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. Rather than allowing adversity to cause us to cower in fear and make a mockery of our faith, we should instead walk in fearless obedience, trusting fully in God's promises. You know, as I reflected on this text this week, I couldn't help but go back to that which I mentioned to you in the introduction, and that is this is Isaac's only chapter. This chapter is the one that's devoted to things that happened to him. And, and Lord willing, we'll get to the second part of it next week. But I found myself contemplating the fact that pretty much everything we learn about Isaac is not all that inspiring. In fact, one great Old Testament scholar preached a sermon on Isaac's life and he entitled the sermon from hero to zero. You see, what we come to realize is that when adversity came, Isaac's trust was in himself. And had God not stopped him, he would have gone to Egypt rather than trusting that, that God could provide for him during a famine in Canaan. And then Isaac gave in to lying to the men of Gerar in order to protect himself rather than trusting that God would protect him and fulfill his promises. And you know what the real irony of all of that is? This was the same Isaac, the same Isaac who now is so reluctant to trust his life with the saint was, was the same one whose life God protected when he substituted a ram caught in the thicket by his horns and allowed that ram to become the sacrifice that took Isaac's place. And Isaac found out that the God of heaven could protect him from the upraised knife of his own father. And if God was able to protect him and to save him there, then was he not also able to protect and to save Isaac from every danger that he faced in everyday life? Brothers and sisters, let me ask you the same question. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God whom He has sent as the demonstration of His love for you, 
by taking your place on Calvary's cross. If you believe that Jesus died in your place and rose from the grave in order to save you and in order to free you from your sins, past, present, and future, and give you eternal life, if you believe that, then why are you not able to trust him to deliver you from whatever difficult circumstances that you are facing in your life right now? I don't want you to know that doesn't mean that difficult times will never come. Adversity will strike. Famines will come. But we need never fear that the trials and the troubles that come our way can ever overcome us and rip us out of the hand of the very one who gave his life in order to save ours. I'm grateful that when I remember the life of Isaac, you want to know what the first memory of Isaac that comes to my mind is not this episode here in Genesis 26. His failure here in Gerar is not my first thought. Rather, when I think of Isaac, the first thought that I think of him goes back to his life being saved by the God-sent sacrificial lamb. And the truth is, that's what gives me hope. When I recall my own personal failures, when I recall times in my own life when I have lived in fear rather than faith. You see, as a believer, I am grateful that the most important thing to know about me is that Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, died in my place on Calvary's cross. And because of that, I know I have no reason to fear. And I want you to know the same may be said for each and every one of you whose faith is in Christ. Because, brothers and sisters, this is truly the Word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together.